Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve ashabihi ecmaîn. Esselamu aleykum ve rahmetullahi ve berekatuh. Welcome back to the Women on the Straight Path course uh, brought to you by Misk Women, the Muslim Institute for Sacred Knowledge. And this is our second class. Ahlan wa sahlan. My name is Um Abdullah. And you are all very warmly welcomed to our class today. Alhamdulillah. Here we are on our second class uh, last week after having uh, tried to lay a foundation for the Islamic worldview and for our um, perspective that we will be uh, taking and um, applying inshallah when we look at uh, women on the straight path um, in their historical context and also in the present day and how we are able to uh, apply that perspective uh, to not only to what we study in terms of subject matter but also how we're able to implement that ourselves uh, in our lives and as we journey on our own path and inshallah the straight path back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he is our ultimate goal. Um, this picture we had at the end of last week and uh, this is the maqam or the, the tomb, the shrine of uh, the great uh, Sayyida Khadija al-Kubra alayhi salam uh, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the first um, mother of the believers whose life we will be looking at in more detail today inshallah this of course was taken some time ago unfortunately no longer exists there in Mecca uh, but this is a very beautiful reminder of how our heritage um, honors people not just only in their lifetime but after their passing through to the next life the next stage of their journey and they are remembered with uh, much beauty uh, even though they've gone on their memory is uh, sanctified and so this type of architecture this beauty this um, love that has gone into these um, edifices here uh, is a reminder to us of who that person was and their importance and status for us as muslims Okay, just going over the class etiquettes again, uh, women only, please, no recordings or screenshots. Um, if you do want to share something from the class on your social media or WhatsApp or wherever you are, um, please feel free to use the posters which are uh, produced and put out um, already on those platforms. So you can copy and uh, send those or repost them, whatever you do, uh, that's fine. Um, and that would include the, the class posters, the topic posters, and also the quote posters, um, which inshallah will be produced uh, weekly, just as a means of keeping connection. Okay, so we will start as we always do with gathering our intentions, gathering our thoughts and our tawajjuh, which is our orientation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and uh, understanding and bringing ourselves present, our hearts present in this, which inshallah is a gathering of knowledge, of sacred knowledge, of sharing sacred knowledge and of uh, connecting um, certainly physically through a virtual platform which is kind of weird but sort of how it is but also inshallah that virtualness extends to the higher realms inshallah where even though we can't really see each other or be literally in each other's physical presence inshallah our hearts are connected and this dua helps us uh, to uh, achieve that inshallah so we'll read it um, in Arabic and then in English with Nila. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nawaitu ta'alamu wa ta'alim wa tadhakura wa tadkir wa nafa wa al-intifa 
والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على تمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم والدعاء إلى الهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وكربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى آمين in the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance, pleasure, proximity and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Amen. In today's class, inshallah, our topics, as you may have seen on the poster that went out, um, inshallah, we'll be covering three different aspects. Um, one uh, that we're beginning with is a particular prophetic teaching methodology. So we'll be looking at one method and having a quick look at three examples of that. Um, one of those which pertains directly to our topic of women on the straight path. And then we will be looking at women in the days of ignorance, the days of Jahiliya, which is the pre-Islamic period in the Arabian Peninsula, and looking at context and contradictions in that, and uh, what parallels we can draw between that time and our own time. And then finally, inshallah, we want to spend um, a good portion uh, looking at the life of Sayyidah Khadija bint Khawailid, um, peace be upon her. Uh, she is given the honorific um, on her be peace or peace be upon her alayhi salam uh, as well as may Allah be pleased with her radiallahu anha uh, but uh, particularly in the Ba'alawi tradition she along with Sayyidah Fatima the daughter of the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam, and also Sayyidah Maryam um, the mother of uh, Sayyidina Isa the Prophet Jesus uh, she is also given the honorific of uh, on her be peace so we can uh, feel free to use that inshallah. Okay, our first topic is on prophetic teaching methodology, one method and three examples. Now, just in case um, you're, you have attended some of our classes before and you're thinking, oh great, this would be the first time that Umm Abdullah hasn't put <laughs> this hadith up, which I always make a point of teaching because it's so important. Um, sorry to disappoint you, but here it is again, just in case you thought that maybe things would be a little bit different. Uh, but alhamdulillah, we have another opportunity to look over this again and to revise it and to consider ourselves with regards to it. So every time we're presented with some knowledge, with a hadith, with an ayah, with anything, it's another opportunity for us to check again, oh, how am I going with regards to that? So when we look at this hadith and the next two, what we're actually looking at here is a methodology uh, which is about uh, the presentation of knowledge through drawing, okay, or sketching, or through using some type of pictorial uh, diagram or representation to convey certain ideas and concepts and knowledge. So the Prophet والسلام, uh, he was known of course to have been illiterate in the sense that he could not physically uh, read or write as per the custom of the day and the way in which the Arabs uh, wrote their language and read their language. 
And of course, there are many wisdoms in that. One of them, of course, being because he couldn't then be accused of having read the books of the Christians and the Jews and come up with something and call it the Quran and try and get people to believe in him. So everybody knew that uh, as far as uh, texts and textual materials concerned that he um, was not able to engage with them on that particular level. However, what he did do, and we have three reports of this, at least that I know of, is that he expressed a number of extremely significant concepts in a pictorial form, okay? And this is one of them. And this is a very, very important hadith, as I said. Um, it's something that um, I like to bring up all the time because it really uh, represents to us the reality of our context of where we are in our um, social, historical, uh, cultural and every other aspect of our lives at the moment, um, where we are with regards to the straight path. So we'll just read it in English if you want to and, and can, um, you can read it in Arabic. So in this particular one, um, Ibn Mas'ud, may Allah be pleased with him, reported that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, drew a line in the sand. So he took a stick, it's believed, and or a sharp uh, implement, and he drew a straight line in the sand. And he said, this is the straight path of Allah. So here, the idea is not to just tell us what's going on in his mind, but rather to put down a visual representation so that we're able to expand on the meaning of that okay and that's what an artistic representation does so he said this is the straight path of Allah then he drew lines to the right of it and lines to the left of it so smaller lines not connected to the main line just a little bit disconnected and on the side and he said these are other paths which divert from the straight path upon each of them is the shaitan calling to it and then he recited um, an ayah from uh, chapter 6 and he said this is my path so this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaking uh, where he says uh, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is my path that is straight so follow it uh, so follow it and do not follow the other paths lest they divert you from his path from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's straight path so because this is the women on the straight path and because um, we've tried uh, to situate ourselves in this straight path worldview then this particular visual representation is significant to us because not only is it a concept that gets discussed but it's a concept that actually has been visually represented um, and that shows a degree of significance because there are many, many things that the Prophet ﷺ discussed, but they didn't get that same representation. So they weren't given to the people who could learn from a visual form like this particular one was. Of course, we can have a huge discussion about this, but I think like last week, what we covered would be sufficient to put this particular hadith in context. And as I said, it's a reminder to us to check ourselves, well, where am I on the straight path and which of those paths on either side that divert from the straight path and upon which there is a shaitan calling to it, am I on? 
So where am I on that? You know, am I following uh, uh, any sort of ideological path? Am I thinking so far out of the straight path that my success is going to come from here or there? Or am I putting my religion last and following the so-called experts in this and that? Uh, where am I thinking about myself as a woman? Do I take my, my strength, my understanding of myself and what I'm doing in this world from uh, feminist ideas, feminist ideologies, um, you know, etc. So this is a means for us to check ourselves, inshallah. Uh, this is another one uh, which has been reported in uh, Al-Bukhari, in the book of uh, Sahih Al-Bukhari. And in this one, uh, also Abdullah ibn Masood, he reports that the Messenger of Allah drew a square and a line in the middle of it and then a line extending out of it. So he drew that middle line, uh, the thick middle line, and then continued it outside of the square shape. And inside the box, he drew lines on either side of that line in the middle. And he said, this is, or this image represents the son of Adam, so the person. And this is his lifespan which surrounds him. So he's inside this particular uh, contained space, if you like, which is the, his lifespan. So how long he has between birth and death. So you're contained within that. And he said that this in the middle is the human being. So this uh, thick center line is the actual person themselves in that lifespan. And the small lines are the events in a person's life. So these are the things that happen to you. So you're born, you're born in a certain family, um, you live in a certain country with a language and a certain education system, certain climate, certain, you know, all these things about which you really have no control. Some things you have more control over than others, uh, but for the most part, uh, a lot of our lives are things that we don't have any control over, including the way we look, okay, including skin color, including hair type, including gender, are we born male or female? These are all things that have already been decided for us and that this will be um, the, the life that we live inside of this contained space, which is between birth and death. So he said that if he passes through an event, so if you pass through one of those lines uh, successfully, then the next one grabs you, okay? So now you're confronted with another event in your life, okay? And so on and so forth until you go through. So it, it really comes down to how do you deal with those events in your life, okay? And so he says here that, um, that the line that exits, the one that comes out the top is the person's hopes. So it's showing that what you hope for in your life and what you might necessarily attain in your life aren't always going to be commensurate. So you will definitely get uh, grabbed by or caught by the things um, which, you, which have been written for you and your hopes extend beyond that. And sometimes they're in agreement and sometimes they're not. So here also we have a really interesting and quite a complex uh, representation of uh, the journey of a person through their life and uh, what happens and how it happens and then of course what comes after that is the response you know how do you deal with these aspects in your life so again the, the point of this is not to just convey this image like that but to actually 
have it and and used as something to give people some food for thought and to think about once they've seen it put forward in a visual representation. Our third one, and the one that concerns us particularly for its content, is where uh, it's narrated here from uh, Ikrama from Ibn Abbas, uh, who said that the Messenger of Allah drew four lines on the ground and said, he asked the Sahaba, the companions with him, do you know what this is? So he, he said, do you know what this a series of lines is, this representation? And they said, Allah and his messenger know best. And the messenger said, the best women in paradise are Khadija bint Khuwailid, Fatima bint Muhammad, Maryam bint Imran, and Asiya bint Muzahim, the wife of Fir'aun. And so he put these four lines down, again, to give a pictorial or a visual representation of a concept. And it's through visualizing something that it becomes firm, that it becomes something that's understood, uh, that here are these four lines that have been drawn and that they represent four particular women and they represent something very great about them. So this is a particular methodology which, as you can see, is conceptually based and is something that really makes us think and should open up our minds because now we're perceiving and receiving knowledge uh, through a particular style which was used quite infrequently, only three times uh, that I know of, unless anybody knows any other examples. Um, and which of course have a really, really big impact. Okay, and, and this is the one that we're concerned with. So he drew about the women of paradise in this particular manner. So inshallah, we will uh, begin our studies with these four women, inshallah, and then see where we go after that. So we're going to begin with Sayyidah Khadija, alayhi salam. And first of all, before we get into like her biographical details and um, instances of her life that are meaningful to us and to the whole ummah really we're going to have a look inshallah at the context in which she lived the uh, historical context and also at some of the contradictions uh, that were present in her time and which could easily and, and are argued uh, still exist actually and, and exist in all cultures, all contexts, all times and are particularly noticeable in our own current context. So Sayyidah Khadija lived obviously in um, ancient Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula in the time of Jahiliya. So Jahiliya uh, meaning ignorance, um, Ayyam al-Jahiliya, the days of ignorance. So this was in the uh, period before the first revelation before the advent of Islam. And I have been reading a book by an Egyptian scholar called Dr. Aisha Bint Ashati. And she wrote this book in about the 1980s, I think. And uh, she has some interesting views. It's a, a book of literature in the sense that she really wrote from her heart uh, the stories of the women of the prophetic household. And she's also included um, some analysis um, of other aspects uh, of their context, of their cultures and societies and things like that. So um, it's quite an enriching book and one that inshallah we'll be drawing from quite often. Um, it's an important book 
because it does have these uh, different levels of analysis that she goes into. I don't think necessarily that everybody would agree with some of her viewpoints, um, but that's fine. We don't always agree on everything. And uh, what is really good in it is actually really good, inshallah. So this is one of the, the books that um, I'm really happy to uh, share with everybody because it really expands some of our ideas, inshallah. So when she discusses this um, period of jahiliya, this time of ignorance, and uh, its context, she's, she talks specifically about women um, in Arabian society. And she says that across the board in all ancient societies, actually, not just this one alone, women have always been honored, okay? And, and that hating women is actually not from the fitrah. And that hating women is kind of an aberration in the thinking of the people at the time. And so we can see across all of those ancient societies that the fitri part or the primordial disposition part is that women have to be honored and women have to be protected and women have to be uh, looked after, obviously in order for reproduction, but also because women have been made as the companions of men, as the natural life companions of men, because women fulfill so many different roles of being the mother, of being um, other members of the family, of being nurturers and producers. And so obviously it's, it would go against um, the, the fitra of any society and of any people to have a completely sort of um, animalistic or, or completely brutal uh, approach to women, which is often how it's uh, presented um, that was the case for women in, in this Jahiliya period in Arabia, that it was a time of a real violence against women, which uh, there were certainly aspects of that. But there was also this contradiction going on because while there's this uh, very um, low-grade, uh, brutal aspect, there's also this extreme honouring of women, which goes beyond just honouring them as pillars of society and uh, partners in life and all the rest of it but that they get put on a pedestal so she really uh, shows how these two extremes operated um, in ancient Arabia and so she says that basically the two extremes show that there is an, an aberration in thinking and it, it shows that there never has been a complete or a completely sound attitude or practice in any society towards women where there was a middle way or a balanced way between dealing with the great and tremendous virtues and um, capabilities of women and um, trying to balance all of that out without degrading it. And that, of course, is until Islam came and changed that. And uh, basically what Islam did was it took away those extreme elements and it showed the reality, the human reality and the metaphysical reality of the woman as a created human being, her role in society, her value, um, her virtue and the high stations and ranks that she's able to achieve. So that's not to say that we're looking back with some kind of rose-coloured glasses over 14 centuries of human history um, because that would just be unrealistic. Um, and, and we know through, uh, particularly through poetry and Arabic literature, that there's always been a few fringe elements, um, elements of society where there's practices, kind of debauchery, there's 
uh, unsavory things going on and that happens in all societies but what we're talking about is the mainstream set of ideas and values and practices which only Islam has been able to bring and manifest and maintain across all societies in the world who have adopted uh, the pure Sharia and the pure attitude and pure understanding of what it means to be a human and to live according to this manhaj, to this method, this straight path methodology that our religion teaches us. So she also talks a little bit about the ancient Egyptians, um, how uh, women were often sacrificed. And we know from other countries as well that this act of what we would now call femicide, um, so the the um the killing of women is something that's been around in other cultures as well um, such as a woman having to throw herself alive on the funeral pyre of her dead husband or widows being abandoned as outcasts because they no longer have a husband things like that which are things which have continued into quite modern times and uh, Sheikha Muhammad Akram al-Nadwi who wrote the very great 43 volume work on uh, female hadith scholars um, he said uh, actually that uh, not educating girls um, is the equivalent of femicide and he particularly drew an analogy to the burying of women alive or sorry of girls alive which was a practice in the Jahiliya times and he said that by not educating girls uh, you're basically doing the same thing it's like you're burying them alive so we have these uh, severe practices on the one hand and on the other hand, in ancient Arabia, you find that, and this is in the Quran, um, the naming or ascribing of the female to angels. Okay, so the ancient Arabs um, sanctified and glorified uh, this concept of the feminine to the point where they actually said that angels are female because they were held with such reverence. Um, and in Surah Al-Najm, uh, it says, it says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna ladina la yu'minuna bil akhirati la yasummun al malaikata tasmiyat al unta. So indeed, those who do not believe in the akhirah in the next life, um, they are the ones who call the angels female. Wa ma'lahum bihi min ilm, and they do not have any knowledge about that. Iya tabi'una illa dhan, and they only are following some type of assumption or uh, some type of uh, imagination or fantasy and it, it truly assumption is no substitute for the truth so here the Quran mentions it and mentions it a few times um, and some of their uh, gods the idols that they worshipped uh, were also given female names so here we have this, uh, as we said, this enormous veneration and then going back into this uh, brutality against females or this real acts of femicide, uh, we have the burying of the girls alive. And this happened for a number of reasons and um, Dr. Aisha Bintashati, she has listed some of these and she said that um, sometimes people felt that they should do it uh, bury their daughters in the sand because perhaps they thought they wouldn't find a suitable match or that they themselves would be burdened by her wedding and they didn't want to do that 
or they thir- thought that she that she wouldn't find a good partner like a good husband um, and in doing so that would bring down the status of the tribe uh, or worse that she might end up not being a very uh, chaste type of a girl or whatever so what they feared was shame or disgrace but she says what they really feared was poverty and this is also mentioned twice in the Quran as well um, and so because they were um, desert people nomadic people and uh, often really lived hand to mouth that if they had a lot of daughters uh, it, it said that they didn't want to expose them to um, a dif- to difficulties in life and to hardship so the aberration in their logic extended to the point of killing them okay not out of hatred but out of trying to protect them and trying to protect them from a life of poverty so here you can see these contradictions it's like if you think straight you you can't possibly think like that that by getting rid of someone you're actually saving them from something worse so this is where the logic where the attitude and the practice of the people is really going against the fitra because in the fitra the primordial disposition is women are not hated okay so there's some other thing that steps in there and causes a person to think about this in a completely wrong way and so in this case it came down to um, being afraid of them being exposed to the hardships of poverty and it said that the very first person to ever prevent it from happening uh, was somebody whose name was Sa-Sa and he came across a man and his wife sitting in the desert and uh, he said to them uh, what are you doing here because it was a very strange sort of situation that he hadn't come across before and he noticed that the wife was crying and that she had a newborn baby with her and so uh, he, he saw that and he said to her, what's going on? And so she pointed to her husband and she said, this is my husband and he wants to bury my baby daughter. And so this um, Sa Sa um, asked him, he said, what on earth has caused you to want to do that? And he said, al-fakr, which is poverty. Okay, so he said poverty, so I'm just reading it here and trying to translate it as we go. Um, and so what he did was he followed up with them by bringing two camels okay two female camels and their offspring and so his way of changing this situation was to actually give them wealth and that's what he did so the child was saved and the family became wealthy and he continued to do that and then those who came after him like his um, sons and uh, tribe members whoever else they also did the same thing so they were the ones who were known to have prevented this from happening so it's not like it's something that just happened every day and nobody really cared about it because it was just normal no it was it was completely abhorrent and nobody liked it and so they sought to try and change this with their hand as much as they could um, and so that's uh, the the poverty that they're mentioning there about what why that would cause people to want to murder their own uh, daughters is mentioned twice in the Quran um, in Surah Al-An'am and where it says uh, so imlaq is the word for poverty that's used so do not kill your children out of poverty we as in Allah will provide for them and you and then in Surah Al-Isra so do not kill your children from fear of poverty again the same word we will provide for them and you 
إن قتلهم كان خطأً كبيراً. Indeed, killing them is a most uh, heinous mistake or crime. And that word is uh, only appears in the Quran in those two ayahs, that word imlak, and it specifically refers to that sense of poverty and despair and desperation that's associated with a person who is thinking of actually um, pursuing this heinous act of murdering their own children. And also, um, Dr. Aisha bin Shati, she mentions that only five tribes actually did this and that four had stopped before the advent of Islam and only the tribe of Tamim continued. So that's why it was still present when Islam began. Um, but according to her, it's not as widespread as is often believed. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't other forms of violence against women and some of these are mentioned in the Quran as well. Um, but, you know, she's trying to get a little bit of an analysis here of the contradictions that are going on in the society between this extreme and over-the-top reverence by naming angels and gods with uh, female names and calling them female. And then on the other hand, you've got people wanting to bury their daughters out of poverty. And this is something that we should really think about in terms of our own context because if we think about the extremes of reverence and degradation that happened then in the time of Jahiliya, and then we had this kind of uh, evening out to a great extent of that over this long period of time over centuries, and now it's like we've come away from that again and we're in the second time of Jahiliya. So we're in a new or in a second age of ignorance. And if you look at our own society, you will see that. Um, you will see that there is this kind of, at least outwardly, an extreme reverence uh, for women having to become astronauts and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and, and uh, being uh, you know, entrepreneurs and being, uh, you know, climbing Mount Everest and doing all these extreme things for which we are meant to revere women for those acts. But at the same time, we have a society which is completely pervaded by the most degrading and disgusting acts of pornography, okay, which most of us would be aware is one of the most, uh, um, is one of the biggest uh, industries in our time. There's arms, pornography, and drugs, I think, are the, the top uh, industries. And you know, so here we have again this, this incredible contradiction and somewhere in the middle of all that, um, you know, everyday women have to try and find their way between uh, seeking, oh, well, what will make me revered in the society, but at the same time having life kind of pretty much dominated by these really low-grade and deplorable uh, acts of hypersexualization um, and sexual exploitation that go on visually through the media um, that get instilled into our hearts and minds. Uh, through the things that we see and the type of uh, body expectations um, that we are expected to accept and adhere to. So again, we're in this contradictory position and the only way out of it is through Islam. The only way out of it is to attach ourselves to knowledge, to attach ourselves to this gene and to find that balance in that middle way of being women, of being feminine and of being great okay but not necessarily according to the paradigms and models that are imposed on us from this ignorant society but from the paradigms and models of greatness which are inherent in our own tradition and the greatest example of all of that is Sayyida Khadija because this is the very society that she came out of 
um, and she was born, raised, married twice before she married the Prophet ﷺ. She had three children. Uh, she was a trader. She was a businesswoman. And in this time of contradiction, she grew her wealth and her social status. So she for us now in our time is a, is a rare and a beautiful example of how when she as an individual, as a human being, when her fitra, her primordial disposition to want to know Allah, when her soul's yearning to know and seek um, who her Lord is and um, who he is and what she's meant to do to fulfill her understanding and worship to know him, that when that's nurtured and protected despite the context, okay, and despite what's going on around her, um, then we can see how this person, this amazing woman flourished and then how that really accelerated um, once she did connect to that sacred message when it was uh, revealed to her husband. So we'll go now to looking at her life in a bit more detail. Uh, Sayyidah Khadija bin Khawailid, the mother of the believers, the first and the ultimate mother of the believers because it is back to her uh, that our Bayt, that the people of the prophetic household trace their lineage and uh, she is of course the first believer and all the scholars are in agreement that she is the first human being who ever believed in the message of Islam. Um, she preceded all other men and all other women and she was the first to hear that message after it was given to the Prophet ﷺ in the cave of Hira. And he came to her and she told he told her what he had heard from the angel Jibreel, um, Gabriel, and she immediately believed him and accepted that and she took action. And really, really, a hugely important point for us is she was a mover and a shaker, okay, if we want to put it in, you know, pretty ordinary terms but terms that we can understand that when her husband came to her with something she acted upon that okay and she didn't just sit there and go oh really oh I think you're not feeling well you know why don't you sit down and have a cup of tea and turn on the footy you know she was she was like she took this seriously okay and she understood that this man is a great man and that this man has experienced something and as his wife and as his partner in his journey of life it is my job and my responsibility to think about that and to act on that and she facilitated the um the the planting and the cultivating and the nourishment of islam and she facilitated that in him and she facilitated that so that he could go out there and spread this message and that's what we're actually meant to do as women we are facilitators and we get this stuff about being multitaskers and all this type of thing uh, which is true um, we have a, a, an ability that men don't have to the same extent of course men can but we are uh, made in such a way that we're able to take on a number of different things at once and actually manage all of that quite well and facilitate all of that. So if you look at one day in your life at how many different things you facilitate for other people as well as for yourself, whether it be in your home, whether it be outside in the community, whether it be in your workplace, um, what we do is we make things happen. Okay, and Sayyidah Khadija is for us 
the best and ultimate example of how to make something happen. And within the marriage, within the family, and within the broader community, and of course eternally, because without her, then Islam, we wouldn't know it the way that we actually know it and experience it today. This is basically, I, I suppose, a, a little uh, summary of the main things that happen in her life, and we're just going to talk a little bit about each of those. Uh, so first of all, her lineage, she was a pure Qureshi, um, or Qureshiya, on both her sides, on her father's side and her mother's side. So she was the daughter of Khuwailid, who was the son of Asad, the son of Abdul Uzay, the son of Qusay, the son of Kilab. So Qusay is her uh, forefather in her lineage where she meets the Prophet والسلام, because he was also from one of the other sons of Qusay. And his uh, family and tribe branched off from that son and hers branched off from the other son of Qusay. That's where they meet in terms of their lineage. So she was Qurayshia Asadia from Asad, so the tribe of Asad. And her mother, uh, her mother's name was Fatima, and she was the bint, the daughter of Zaida ibn As'am, or uh, As'am, ibn Rawaha, ibn Hajar, ibn Abd, ibn Mu'is, ibn Amir, ibn Lu'ay. So again, she goes back to Lu'ay on her mother's side, who was one of the uh, forefathers in that line, which goes past Qusay and Kilab. And on her grandmother's side, so her mother of her mother, um, her grandmother was Hala bint Abdi Manaf ibn al-Harith, who is also a descendant from Lu'ay, the son of Ghalib. So they all have this very, very pure Qurayshi line um, or lineage. So she was born 55 years before the revelation. Okay, I mean, that's practically a lifetime, and particularly then, because people didn't always live for very long. So we know that she married the Prophet when she was 40, and that the first revelation came uh, 15 years after that. So she was already 55. So that would put her birth date approximately around 554 uh, in the um, Christian calendar. So around then, give or take a few years, of course, we're not exactly sure. And it was 55 years before the first revelation, if the revelation um, is, is accurately put to 609. Okay, so uh, that's the 6th century. So I was having a look to see, you know, what's kind of a, a history timeline there of the 6th century to see what are some of the other things going on that would have impacted her at that time or her life or had, had some type of historical significance for us looking back. And what struck me was that in 527, so say around 30 years before she was born, then Justinian became the emperor of Rome, okay? And he set about restoring the Roman Empire to its former glory. And then only about 100 years or so after that, in 636, the Muslims fought the Romans, the Battle of Yarmouk, where 30,000 Muslims fought 300,000 of the Roman uh, empire okay so the army so they were really outnumbered about 10 to 1 and they won that battle so just before she was born this huge event that would take place 100 or more years later was beginning to form 
and uh, you know it's really interesting to to see that going on um and as well as that in 529 the emperor justinian did something extremely significant in terms of muslim scholarship which would come up later and this is really really important um, particularly if you're looking at the history of scholarship and the way in which the whole islamic um, scholarly tradition and canon has developed what he did in 529 was he closed down what they called the Athenian schools of philosophy. So Athenian, Athens, the Greeks. So this was um, the schools of philosophy that people had studied from more ancient times than that. All the writings of Plato and Aristotle and the whole Greek uh, philosophy and um, understanding of logic and metaphysics and everything um, that had come from the Greek tradition. So he closed all these schools down and there was a huge one in Alexandria and so the scholars of those schools moved north and the reason why he closed them is because he saw that way of thinking as a threat to Christianity and so those scholars moved north and they ended up going around in some parts of Persia where they were uh, accepted there and the people liked what they had to say and they learnt from them so they went into like the Zoroastrians okay who were the people there also Christians also Jews all in that area and then it's probably about 200 years after that um, give or take a bit where the Muslim scholars now who had gone through this period of Islam of revelation and the first couple of generations and they were really formulating the whole scholarly tradition where they came across these people um, who were the maintainers of the Aristotelian uh, philosophical school and they met with them and they learnt about this and then they took it and they absolutely changed it and they changed the whole history of scholarship through listening to what these people had to say and taking from it the parts that were um, good and leaving behind the things that weren't and they use that now as the basis for um, the Islamic logic and jurisprudence and uh, rational theology which is Ilm al-Kalam, scholastic theology and using that as a proper way of thinking to base our tradition on. So that's just a little bit of history fun facts and there are things that were going on in the same century that Sayyida Khadija was born. Okay, a um, little bit of a diversion there but an interesting one I think. So when it comes to her previous marriages um, she had two and the first was Abu Hala the father of Hala who was one of her sons Ibn Zarra and she had two sons to him Hala and Hind and she also had a grandmother called Hala who we've mentioned and she had a sister called Hala. So Hala was obviously a name that they liked a lot and it was given for males and females like there's a few um, Arab names like that such as Noor can be used for males and females. Talha is a male and female name um, and there are some others. So Hala is one and the other one is Hind, okay? And she had two sons in her first marriage, Hala and Hind. And then when her husband passed away and she remarried, she married um, Atik ibn Aid al-Makhzumi and she had a daughter called Hind. So she had one son called Hind and a daughter called Hind. And she was, of course, a wise and wealthy trader. She was the richest woman in Mecca, and many, many people sought her hand in marriage. And she was given the name Sayyida Nisa Quraysh, that she was the lady, the head lady of the women of Quraysh, because she was wealthy, she was beautiful, she was a good character, and she rejected every single one who came for her hand in marriage.
So at the age of 40, um, she had begun to hear about this young man, young orphan, whose name was Muhammad, um, the son of Abdullah, and uh, she knew a little bit about him as being one of the people there in her uh, society, uh, not really her community because she may not necessarily have mixed with those types of people on a social level, but she knew that he was Qureshi and uh, he was certainly someone that people were talking about for his tremendous character, his honesty and uh, who, who he was. Like He was a person uh, already of um, tremendous virtue. And so she, um, I'm not sure because I've read a couple of different things. I've read in one book that she invited him to come on one of her uh, trade journeys and trade for her. And I've also read that uh, he was told by his uncle Abu Talib to approach her and to seek work from her because they were quite an impoverished family and that she, because she paid well. And so uh, he encouraged uh, his nephew Muhammad to go to Khadija and seek work um, and that that would be good for him and their family. And so, of course, the story where he went and he went to the south of Syria and he traded and he came back with huge profits and she uh, paid him extremely well and she was known to pay her uh, traders who worked for her extremely well and she started to think about him and she sent one of her friends to a kind of inquire where he might be at with the uh, possibility of marriage and she said to him, this friend Nafisa, she said, uh, you know, are you interested in marriage? And he said, but I have nothing to marry with, like I don't have any money, which would mean what he'd given it all to his uncle, everything that he'd earned and given it to the poor and given it to help others and he had nothing. But uh, she, he understood from her that she was referring to Sayyidah Khadija. Um, and so they ended up marrying and they, they really had a tremendous love for each other, um, like a real, real love affair. Um, very, very beautiful. And uh, she called her family members, all the tribe, the day after they got married, and she said to them in a completely unexpected way, I'm giving all my wealth to Muhammad. And uh, okay didn't quite know what to expect from that but it wasn't for 15 years until the meaning of that really sank in that she was giving her money to her new husband. Um, they had uh, six children, not seven, um, his seventh child was with uh, Maria Kiptia uh, much later on in Medina and uh, who passed away, Sayyidina Ibrahim and so she had six children with him after the age of 40 and at the age of 55 she really came into what her whole life had prepared her for um, and this is so interesting for us because we know that a mature woman is quite different to a young woman okay and there's something about the wisdom and maturity of an older woman which can never be matched by a girl or a young woman in her 20s who just doesn't have that uh, knowledge or the the breadth of life experience that an older woman does and the problem with our society today amongst many of our problems is that we put so much pressure on our young women to be clear and decisive and to know about themselves and about who they are and what they want to do and what they value and believe in and aspiring to be something great and grand in life 
but they just haven't got those years of experience to be able to really build those things on in the way that these pressures and expectations would have them do so. And so, subhanAllah, we look at Sayyidah Khadija and all the events that have gone on in her life beforehand, but at the age of 55, which as we said was kind of old then, you know, in terms of life expectancy, at 55, now is when she came to her fall. So now is when she bloomed fully as a human being and as a woman in her role. And it's quite late. And it's often said too that in our society, um, you know, women, okay, they get married, say in their 20s, they have kids, they spend a good 20, 25, 30 years in nurturing and family life. And after the last one's kind of up and left the nest, then finally she has some time on her own. And then it's when she really gets into her spiritual life, her artistic life, her community life, and she really comes into being um, who she is in her most complete sense uh, later in life. And so we can see that um, very clearly in the life of Sayyidah Khadija So when it comes to the revelation, that's when it appeared to her when she was at that age. She was the first to hear it, and often the first to hear it when the revelation came to the Prophet when they were in their house. Um, she was the first to nurture it and cultivate it, and her home was truly the cradle of Islam. Uh, this is where the religion was born, and it grew under her nourishment uh, through a nourishment that was given both spiritually and materially. So it's nourishment that grew because of her incredible and unwavering belief and yaqeen, certainty, um, her tawakkul, her trust in Allah, and her knowledge that what her husband had come with was the truth. So she fought um, against many, many difficult situations and people and instances uh, on that basis, okay? And she um, really, really nurtured um, in that sense the, the, the growth of this religion and also uh, materially because she had already many years before given her wealth um, for the sake of her husband and now here is where it was all going to go so this was wealth that was going to go into supporting the muslims supporting the community um, protecting them against uh, economic boycotts that the Quraysh and the, the other tribes were uh, inflicting upon them and to the point where she experienced this nurturing to such an extent that her whole life changed and she changed from a life of luxury, of wealth, of uh, being the most respected. As we said, she was the, the Sayyidah of all the women of Quraysh. She was the woman of Quraysh. And so in the eyes of people now, that started to diminish. And uh, now she was the husband of this man who was called a liar and a magician and all the rest of it, someone who was now really becoming very persecuted because he was challenging his people about their beliefs and their worshipping of uh, rocks and stones, which were their idols. And so she changed completely and went from that wealth and luxury to uh, a life basically of poverty and literally starvation, uh, which is when they were boycotted by the Quraysh and spent three years on the mountaintop uh, literally starving. So if we put um, some modern terms on what she experienced, it can also help us understand. Um, she bore the trials 
of uh, incredible uh, lies and slander and uh, acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Okay, this is what was going on. The Quraysh were literally trying to wipe out the Muslims, like wipe them off the face of the earth. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, dispossession, dispossession of land and property. Okay, they, they wanted to kill the Muslims, take over their houses. Okay, and when the Muslims left for Medina, when they did the Hijrah, then the Quraysh moved into their houses and took them over. So 10 years later, when they came back for the conquest of Mecca, they found that people had been living in their houses for all that time. Um, anyway, so they had uh, economic um, sanctions imposed on them where all the people in Mecca refused to trade with them. And they were, the, they were subject to um, gross acts of political propaganda where the Quraysh and the tribes it was almost like a media campaign to slander them and to abuse them and vilify them, the Muslims, for who they were. And as it turns out, that you would think this situation was hopeless. So now they're expelled from their homes, their land, their businesses, everything. They go and live on the mountain for three years and boil rocks, boil leaves, anything. They're a really, really terrible, terrible state. And they're blockaded all around. Okay, and she experienced this. So imagine the lap of luxury she'd been in and she's gone now to this. And that for her was an honor because she knew what she was doing and she knew that she was uh, upholding this deen and upholding the truth. And so for her to have experienced that was in the physical world a lowering, but in the world of her acceptance with Allah, this was the highest level of elevation. Um, so you would look at that situation where there's a complete blockade with Quraysh and all the other tribes. Who's going to help them? Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so when that paper, that boycott agreement had been eaten up inside the Kaaba and only Bismillahirrahmanirrahim stayed on that paper and was seen, this was the help that Allah had sent. And this was uh, the, the, the victory for the Muslims that had come only from Allah and we seek Allah's help in all our affairs and for persecuted Muslims all across the world where it looks like there's no victory but the victory is there and it's coming inshallah and these people's lives will be changed inshallah for the better. So this is some of the things that she experienced um, and uh, she ended up passing away shortly after that and that was called the year of sadness Ahmed Huzan and uh, that was at the eighth year oh sorry not the eighth hijra sorry there's a mistake on the slide um, the eighth year after the revelation um, and so it said that there was only one month between her passing away and the passing away of Abu Talib the uncle of the Prophet والسلام, who had provided protection for him uh, from the kind of marauding tribes who wanted to kill him but he had kept him under his protection and then once Abu Talib passed away then it's like he didn't actually literally have any tribal protection anymore so he was on his own because no one else was going to offer their protection for him so this was an extremely difficult time for him والسلام, his two pillars um, Abu Talib and Khadija um, uh, were gone and now this was a really really desperate time but of course Allah helped him and uh, you know the rest of the seerah there um, lots of other stories so um, when we look at her memory after that so how was she remembered 
I think the point is, and also the point that uh, Dr. Aisha Bint Ashati makes here, is that she's never been forgotten. So it's not about remembering her, it's about the fact that she can't be forgotten because she's so interwoven into the whole existence of Islam uh, that she never really died, okay, in that sense, that she's always there, whether she's mentioned by name, whether her story or anything about her is mentioned, um, just to mention the Prophet ﷺ and just to be a, a believer and to be a Muslim means that already in your soul you're mentioning her because she's the, the mother of everybody um, in the spiritual sense. But when it comes to remembering her, particularly um, the Prophet ﷺ, he used to uh, look after her friends and neighbours and people who she loved and was close to in her life by, uh, if he had a lamb, he would slaughter the lamb and distribute the meat to her uh, friends and things like that. And uh, it's also said here that Sayyidah Aisha, um, عنها, that uh, she mentions an occasion uh, where she says that there was a knock on the door. This is when they're in Medina now, some years later, there was a knock on the door and that the Prophet immediately he knew who it was because that knock reminded him of the way that Khadija used to knock on the door and it was indeed her sister Hala who had come to visit him and so he knew that and it reminded him of Khadija and say to Aisha she says that she got so enraged with jealousy okay and so she said to him what reminds you of this old woman from the old women of Quraysh? I mean, <laughs> you know, listen to these words. And she says, Hamra al-Shadaqeen. Right? Which, subhanAllah, like this is just so rude. Um, the Hamra of it, what it means is the redness of the sides of the mouth. Okay, but well, it's obviously an Arab expression. So when a person gets old and their teeth fall out due to old age, then when their, their mouth opens and they smile or they speak or something, you can't see any white anymore because the teeth are gone. All you get is the redness of the gums. Okay, so she had referred to Sayyidah Khadija like that as an old woman, an old toothless woman, basically, who was just a mouthful of gums because she was so old. Really, really rude. And she says this old woman, um, you know, with that description who's passed away, you know, um, Allah has given you or hasn't Allah given you better than that? And so, uh, of course, the Prophet ﷺ, it says, uh, So his face changed, right? He, like he was just, subhanAllah. And he said to her in a very, very upset way, he said, Wallahi, I swear to God, he said, Allah never gave me better than her. He said, she believed in me when the people denied me and disbelieved in me. And she um, gave me her wealth when the people had thrown me out. And Allah had given me children through her and not through any other woman. And so Sayyidah Aisha, she, she mentions that in her life that there was only one woman that she was ever really, really deeply jealous of. And it was Sayyidah Khadija, although she'd never even seen her. Subhanallah. So this was how she's also been remembered as well as a woman who had these virtues and about whom another woman uh, might even find some jealousy in her. And so he says also that um, Prophet says that when he was uh, also had these conversations with Aisha 
and uh, he mentions that no she she was like this and like that and he'd mention her virtues and he also says and she's the one who gave me offspring and so Sayyidah Aisha never had children with him and so for her to hear that would also be uh, difficult for her because she knew that she couldn't give the Prophet so many children and somebody else had and so obviously that person would have a, a status with him because of that and he also says um, he says that and also I was given her love and that for him was uh, something or gifted her love that was uh, uh, hugely significant because at a, he was orphaned he didn't have a mother's love he didn't have the love of a nurturer but he was given her love which was far greater uh, than any other love so inshallah I think we'll leave it there um, because we've been going for quite a while even though there's plenty more to say and we'll just mention in terms of her scholarly writings that there is an abundance of books and poems of praise and remembrance and, and history and everything about her. And this is also another point because a lot of our scholarship comes from men um, and it's men who write about her. And this always strikes me as strange that Islam is always accused of being misogynistic and patriarchal and all of this. But when you read the poems and the writings that men, male scholars and often old men you know who perhaps uh, came from you know this pre-postmodern time that we live in some of our current scholars who are senior um, and of course all those before in in pre-modern times where you know why do i say pre-modern because now it's the modern time so it's like oh feminism and all this stuff you know women's liberation but the point is that how can our scholars and our tradition be accused of being misogynistic when you see the love and the reverence that these men have for a woman like Sayyidah Khadija who they never met um, but because of her virtue and who she was um, they can't help but love her because she's the mother of all the believers and the same for Sayyidah Fatima uh, her daughter who inshallah we'll talk about next week a young woman who passed away at the age of 27 or 28 so not even 30 years old and the reverence and respect and the um, exaltation that people have for this young woman um, which has carried through from generation to generation and to see uh, male scholars who are at the pinnacle of their knowledge stand there in front of hundreds if not thousands of people if not the whole world and cry at the mention of her name how do you explain that okay how how do you explain that other than these extremely, extremely deep um, connections that we can't possibly even try and tap into from our superficial and weak um, concept of this material world. So how can anyone call it misogynistic when all you need to do is look at a grown man crying at the mention of the name of Sayyidah Fatima or Sayyidah Khadija, subhanAllah. So what distinguishes her, so this is kind of our takeaway point, um, what distinguishes her as being the first of those mentioned in that hadith that we mentioned before when the four lines were drawn as being the best, uh, the best of the women in paradise, her adab, so her manners, her etiquette, her conduct, the depth of her understanding, her connection, her relationship, first and foremost to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, secondly to his beloved messenger Ali so it's of course her husband and father of her children and the final prophet and then to creation 
So I kind of feel in all of this we haven't even really begun um, talking about her. But inshallah, I hope that uh, a little bit's being conveyed anyway um, that will help us uh, forge a deeper connection uh, to her and to her station and to her reality. But just a brief story, I just wanted to mention, I think, um, my own first experience uh, with Sayyida Khadija in other than a person in a book, okay, a person who's mentioned as a historical figure, although always mentioned, you know, with great respect and everything, but someone that as a person in history I can understand and everything, but, you know, can't didn't sort of personally have a a, a relationship with in that sense, like I hadn't sort of felt her presence ever before. And I think my, my first very uh, brief experience of, of connecting to a soul in another realm really occurred uh, with her um, in the room of Hubab Zahra, who was the blessed mother of our scholar and teacher Habib Omar um, bin Muhammad bin Salam bin Hafid, Allah uh, preserve him inshallah. And this was probably nine or ten years ago in Tarim and one of the, probably the second or third time we were there, alhamdulillah. And so in one of the last of the ten nights in Ramadan, she would have people come and visit her. So the house was open, it's the house of her son. Um, Habib Ali Mashhur, Rahimahullah, and she lived there and people would come on this night uh, traditionally and visit her. And so I went there, of course, um, you know, all uh, full of sins, full of ego, full of, uh, you know, all the just, you know, blah stuff that we're full of go there and this is what it means to be in the company of the pious and how being in their company purifies you. Uh, subhanallah so you know sitting there going there with just you know all the the junk that's inside and outside and whatever going there greeting her and then everybody um, greets her and she smiles and you smile back at her and if you speak a bit of Arabic you ask her to make a dua for her and she'll make a little dua for you and then you sit down in front of her and it was quite a large room and she was sitting in one corner and I started looking around the room and probably was a bit rude to do that but you know coming there as we are and I saw upon the opposite wall from where she was sitting that there was a picture very similar to this one of this maqam of uh, Sayyidah Khadija and or particularly of the dome and I remember looking at that picture and then looking right across the other side of the room at Hababa Zahra and then I sort of felt like there was something going on so I looked back at the picture and it meant like literally turning the whole way because it was quite a big room I looked at the picture again, I turned back, I looked at her, I looked at the picture again and I looked at her and that's when I realised that there was a, an otherworldly connection between the two women. And subhanAllah, this is like when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you a flash, okay, just a really brief split second moment of realisation of something that is not in the material world but that is outside the material world and this is a gift that he gives and he gives those to people all the time and for someone like me who's come with so much baggage okay and so much internal filth that I like this was like a like the, not a light bulb moment because it doesn't come from your own intellect but it's a, a moment that Allah gives you to show you something and to teach you something and it's at, at that moment that I realized that you could have these really profound connections with people 
um, who don't necessarily exist on the face of the earth anymore. So alhamdulillah, that was um, an experience that Sayyida Khadija uh, was a part of, that Allah opened that window and let this very sinful and unworthy um, slave uh, witness. And alhamdulillah. And then, of course, it's gone. The moment's gone. And then you look around and there's the picture and then there's this beautiful illuminated soul, Hababa Zahra, and her beautiful face smiling at everyone and greeting them and so happy um, with the guests and being pleased that people come and offering her full wealth of love and generosity from her heart and soul to every single person, um, young and old, who come to greet her on that blessed night in Ramadan. Yeah, this is what we ask for. You know, this is what this is what we do when we look at these women and we ask Allah to, to bless us with a split second moment of realization that takes us out of this where we are and lets us see those realities and the lights of those realities uh, manifested in the people both whom we're in front of or have the blessing to be in front of or who have come before us and who we have the blessing of being able to connect with through their stories and their history. So we ask Allah to let us drink from that cup of love and mercy and honor um, of the pious and the elect of this ummah and the cup that they have drunk from and to let us follow them in their actions and their attitudes and their stations and by uh, Allah's mercy alone to enable us to overcome our lowly selves with an enriched and noble understanding that only Allah can manifest and maintain for us. And so we ask him not to allow the, the, the filth and the evil that's inside of us to, prohi to prohibit us from those possibilities, um, inshallah. And we ask him to manifest that in us and allow us to follow them on the straight path in this world and the next. Allahumma ya amin wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa sallam.